Third Rail Classroom is produced with the support of Bedford Freeman and Worth Publishers, the high school division of Macmillan Learning. BFW provides instructional materials and teacher support specifically for advanced placement, as well as some key on-level courses. Find them online at www.bfwpub.com. Welcome to Third Row Classroom. I'm John Golden. In today's episode, I'm going to interview Dr. Eunice Hahn, an economics professor at the University of Utah. She's a labor economist specializing in labor relations and educational policy. Her research focuses on workers' well-being and inequality. What I want to talk with her about today is definitely a third rail issue, teachers' unions. Since throughout this season, Santh and I are going to be making the case that we teachers need to get better at our jobs, we have to ask about the role of teachers' unions in this process. Do they protect bad teachers, as some people claim, or do they help create conditions for teachers to improve? That's the question I want to ask Dr. Han. Well, Dr. Han, welcome so much to Third Row Classroom. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Scolden. So while your research certainly covers a wide range of topics, much of it seems to focus on the impact and role of teachers' unions. So before we get into what your research has found and what it all means, I'm just curious, like, What's drawn you to this as a topic in education and teachers' unions in particular? I get this question a lot. So I grew up in Korea, South Korea, and teachers in Korea are well-respected and they're well-paid. And about top 5% of high schoolers can enter the teacher preparation program. And the national licensing test is only done once a year. So it's pretty competitive. And Korea also has several teachers' unions, and people don't really blame teachers' unions for students' poor performance. But in the U.S., I heard that the teachers are often talked about as public enemy. <laughs> so that was kind of um, wondering for me, but if teachers' unions, uh, teachers' unions are inherently bad, then the cultural difference should not play any role. So that kind of curiosity led me to the topic of unions and the educational issues. Uh, this is fascinating. I'm always curious about the ways that teachers are perceived differently. Do you, do you mind just elaborating just a little bit more on your experience? Just even just not as a researcher, but just as a, a person living here in the United States and someone who's lived in Korea, what, what is the, the difference in perception of, of teachers in these two, two countries? So just personal perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Teachers will be one of my top choice for career if I still were living in Korea. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., not so much. That makes a huge difference, right? So there's right. a reason why right. teachers are respected. Right. Um, they get paid well. That's the first two most important things. And I think the uh, job security-wise, I think it's pretty similar. Once you become a teacher in Korea in the public schools, then, yeah, you're set to go. And once you get a tenure in the United States, you're set to go. But the past there and then after that is very different. Mm -hmm. So knowing all those differences, if I have daughters, then I will probably not say, hey, do you really want to be teachers <laughs> Well, in this condition? And if she says, you know, I'm I passionate for teaching, I love students, then why don't you go for a professorship instead of a teacher? That's what I probably say, knowing all these dynamics. That doesn't mean that I don't respect teachers. I actually have huge respect for teachers because you guys are going through all this and then still choose to be in the classroom, right? So that makes a huge difference. If teachers are drawn into the teaching sector in Korea because of all these benefits, it's different here. 
The teachers are drawn to the classroom because they love it. I think that a lot of people, and even actually some teachers, probably have the sense that all teachers' unions around the country are roughly the same. I think we talk about them as a monolith. Teachers' unions as teachers' unions as. But in in your work, I think that you've kind of defined teachers' unions sort of on a scale of relative strength. Can you talk a little、mm-hmm. bit about what it is that distinguishes the types of unions that you see around in the United States? Sure. So public school teachers, public sector workers. So teachers' unions are governed by public sector labor laws. The things that complicate everything is because each state has their own labor laws towards public sector workers. Depending on where you are, the teachers' union will face different circumstances. So. States like New York and Massachusetts. Some states have duty to bargain laws, which means that school districts have to bargain with the unions if demanded by the union. But some states do not even allow the collective bargaining by public school teachers. And some states have something called meet and confer instead of collective bargaining. And some states allow teachers to strike, while others don't even allow teachers strike. And before Supreme Court ruled that the non-union teachers don't have to pay union dues, or not not the teachers, but non-union public sector workers don't have to pay union dues in like Janus case in 2018, some states were able to collect some dues from non-members. So these are all playing different roles in the legal environment towards teachers' unions. So teachers' unions not the same everywhere; they're very very different. Thank you so much for that clarification. I think that makes a huge difference in what we're going to talk about next, which is the ways that、uh, that unions can support teacher growth and teacher professional development. But I'm but I'm curious. Do you have a sense, and and you may not, but do you have a sense in your research about the percentage of teachers that might be working、mm. in conditions of sort of a what might be considered sort of a strong union as opposed to something else? Do you have a sense of of the sort of proportions in that? Well, so that depends on how you define strong unions, right? So, if I'm going to use something like states that have duty to bargain laws, and before the Janus case, if states were able to collect agency fees from non-union members, then I would consider them as strong teachers' union states. Then about half of the total public school teachers belong there,、mm-hmm. and that's about 1.5 million teachers, and they teach about 25 million students. Okay, so you're talking about a, a significant portion of,、wow. yeah. of of the teaching population and the student population. So that's where I think we want to sort of drill down here in a little bit. That in this season of the podcast, what we've really been exploring is the ways that teachers can get better at their jobs, and and we have to get better at our jobs. Like that's a that's a that's a guaranteed statement that we believe in here, and I believe in in, in myself, but. I think there is this idea out there among the general public and even among teachers that teachers' unions protect "quote unquote" bad teachers. In other words, that if if teachers have these union protections, there's no incentive for them to get better at their jobs because the unions will protect them. So I'm just curious about what your research has shown about that that sort of idea and, and approach. Yeah, I've heard the stories before, right? The teachers' unions protect bad teachers, and there are teachers called lemons, right? But I actually find those stories myth. In my research, I found the opposite. So, districts with strong unions they fire underperforming teachers at a higher rate than districts with weaker unions. 
So the idea is that unions negotiate higher pay for teachers and higher pay and other good things, right? Good benefits for teachers. So knowing that the district will have strong incentives to dismiss underperforming teachers before they get tenure. So I don't even find the evidence that the unions protect underperforming tenure teachers. So that gives me like evidence that once teachers receive tenure, it's hard, not impossible, but it's hard to fire them regardless of the union strengths. So tenure teachers are a different story. But for the untenured teachers, unions are actually the tool that makes the district more proactive in letting bad teachers go. So it's the opposite of what people believe. The teachers unions do not protect bad teachers. Actually, they are more likely to let bad teachers go before the tenure. And tenure for most districts and most teachers happens at what year in employment in most districts? Oh, it varies a lot. Some states don't even have a tenure law, and some states have maybe two years, some states have five years. It varies a lot. So there's an incentive on the parts of both the union and the districts and and the state to make sure that that portion of time prior to tenure is actually Mm -hmm. a time for really close sort of support, evaluation, feedback. So teachers who aren't maybe to that level that we want them to can pursue other options. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. So I want to focus then, we, we have to be talking about student achievement, right? Because we're not really, I'm not in this business to just protect my job. I'm here in the business to try to improve student outcomes. So I'm curious what your research has shown about the connection between a strong teachers union, again, how, however, we're defining that, and student achievement in those states and districts. Do you have any kind of sense on, on what that's found? I do find that the students' outcome, like test scores and high school dropout rates, those, they are better in the district with strong unions. Even in the states that do not allow collective bargaining, the higher union membership among teachers is associated with better student performance. And I think it's because, partly because the teachers' unions support pay structure that reward more experienced teachers. And also teachers' union bargain for higher spending, general spending on public education. And that can be used for like improving student outcome differently. So I don't believe that the t- teacher can be better at their jobs through other means because our teachers, most of them I know, they are already motivated to be in the classroom, even in the hard situations. And they are self-motivating to be better at their jobs. So I'm not even sure if the the policy or any kind of a different pay structure can really give them enough incentive to be a better teacher. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm curious because, uh, you know, post-race to the top, there were a lot of states that were putting in a lot of pay incentives, mm-hmm. supposedly to try to increase teacher performance. I don't know if you did any research or if your research has touched on any of that, but I am curious, have, have you found any connection between incentives like higher pay based upon teacher evaluations and any kind of student outcomes? See, I have not researched yeah. on the topic, but I know the literature that, that there are in consensus. We don't know if the paper performance works well universally. Some researchers find some positive connection. Other researchers find no evidence at all. So based on that, I would not conclude that the paper performance will work well in the education sector. Again, while I'm a teacher, just because they're going to give me a salary increase for like 5%, if my students do better, I'm not even sure if I'm going to change differently 
if I knew a better way of doing it, I would have done it. <laughs> exactly. That's that's why I love I love talking to you right now because it, we're we're just talking logically here. I mean, we know that's how it is, and and we also know that our students change year to year, and the idea yeah. that somehow this population of students, my my students, will fluctuate like this, and it depends upon the course that I'm teaching in some ways. So you know, those, those incentive structures just always seem destined to des- destined the reality. To not be, yeah, useful in that way. <laughs> so unless something changes, one week from today, from when we're recording. My district will go on strike. We voted to authorize our bargaining team to do so. Now we're hoping we, we still have plenty of, of negotiations between now and next week, but it is looking increasingly likely that teachers in Portland public schools will strike. So if that happens, that would be the third district just in this area where that's happened. And I know that there have been other labor actions around teachers unions over this past few years. So I'm just curious, could you give our listeners just a sense of sort of the, the national landscape of teacher actions of recent times? Yeah, every week or so these days, there's some news about teacher going on a strike. It was not like this in like three decades ago. So this is kind of something new, but I think our teachers are stressed and many of them are in a burnout. And I understand that because most teachers I meet love what they do and they have this passion for teaching and they love their students. And our teachers are so educated. Most of them have bachelor's degree and some of them have PhD degree, I know. But almost all of them say money does not matter. Money does not matter. They're going to the classroom knowing that they will not be millionaires. (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) It's true. But when you are in constant pressure, and required to work in unsafe environment, most importantly, if you're underappreciated, then there's going to be a point that you wonder, what am I doing here? For what? Right? That that's probably now. So people expect our teachers to be caring, understanding, and responsible. <laughs> but is our society taking good care of our teachers, I wonder? Do we really understand their struggles? Are we laying too much burden on our teacher's shoulder? The teachers have their own needs and their expectations. If they're not being heard, they feel like this strike is the only option left. So that's probably what we're seeing right now. And because we've seen so many strikes over the years, I've been following the outcome of the strikes. And some strikes ended up in a good place. So teacher strike ended and then teachers received some pay increases and reduction in class size and so on. But I've seen in teachers asked to go back to their classroom and then they were promised like 2% increase in salary. I'm like 2%, like inflation rate is 5%. That, so that means the 5% increase in pay is a kind of break even. Even 6% increase in pay is going to be, you're just getting better off by 1%. <laughs> So I'm wondering if they really understand what teacher salary is like, if they really understand the real value of teacher salary in each district and in each state, because 1% increase in teacher salary is like a nothing in place like San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't really talk about 5% increase in teacher salary universally. It's going to solve the problem. It's going to have some sort of discussion on like standard of living in the area. And what has been like in the past. But I don't know if our society is quite there to understand. Sadly, you, you, you might be right sort of society-wide. I will say that 
we have tremendous support from our parents and families and students. In other words, that the people who know us mm -hmm, best mm -hmm. absolutely support what we want because what we're asking for are the things that are going to be better for our kids. We're asking for reduced class size. We're asking for more mental health supports. You know, we're we're asking for the things that are that are going to help us to do our jobs better for our students and our care. So, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. so much of of education in in the United States, as you know, is local, and and that's sort of the way that we're sort of framing this for ours in this way, where we're talking mm -hmm. to our families, our parents, our students this way. So fingers crossed. And I'll, I'll give you an update, uh, listeners and, and Dr. Han, I'll give you an update uh, afterwards as well. I'm curious if we could end with this. I'm, I'm thinking about the future of the teaching workforce. Right now in my classroom, I'm working with a student teacher. She's from the University of Portland and she's studying to become a teacher. And I have to be honest with you, sometimes I wonder why anyone <laughs> enters this profession. And luckily the student teacher I'm working with loves the work and is passionate about it and wants to do it. There aren't enough of hers all around to fill the ranks of, of the exactly. workforce we need. Mm -hmm. So especially from your perspective as, a, as an economics professor and, and focusing on this, what do you think the future of the teaching workforce is going to be? And, and could you also talk a little bit about the role that you think the decision in Janus is going to play. And, and if you can, for our listeners, could you just say a little bit about what that decision was uh, for the Supreme Court and how it's going to impact the teaching workforce going forward? Okay, a good question. So you mentioned you have a tremendous support from, your, from the parents, right? Which is very important. So the public approval rate for unions in like the highest since 1960s, which is mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. And uh, workers are unionizing in new territories everywhere, which mm -hmm. is also great news. But the thing is, there have been some anti-union legal changes across the United States. Some states adopted right-to-work laws. Some states limit the bargaining power of unions of public sectors. And even the Supreme Court ruled that the anti-union ruling, like you no, know, you cannot collect the any union dues or agency fees from the non-union members, even though their contract is covered by the union negotiation. Right. And that's that's what we call Janus. Janus, yes. Mm -hmm. So that decision, if you think about all these little changes happening these days, it's all sort of anti-unions. So we have this inconsistency, right? The public approval is really high, but the law is not pro-union. Law is actually anti-unions. How is this happening? Right? So teachers' unions are the backbone of public sector unions. And public sector unions have been the stronghold for the labor unions for several decades. Private sector unions being like uh, staggering, like at 5%, 6%, so small. But public sector unions are kind of a 30, 40. So they're the backbone. So teachers union represents teachers, not just union teachers, but also non-union teachers. Because again, their contract will be covered by the same terms. And the collective bargaining agreement that the unions negotiate is applicable to all the teachers in the same bargaining unit. So knowing that, that you should understand teachers union, not just for working for the members, but all teachers. That's, that's kind of a key in understanding what teachers unions are there for. I mean, unions have less bargaining power, both members and non-members are going to be affected. And since Janus, because non-members don't have to pay union dues, you can kind of free ride, right? Your contract is covered by the union negotiation, but you don't have to pay any fees for that. 
So that's called free riding, right? And then as a consequence, the union's going to have some finance issues, right? Their union due is going to be significantly reduced. And then also it's going to cast doubt on the future of the unions, right? So the public approval is important, of course, but we need more pro-union labor laws and the better enforcement of the existing labor laws. That also means that we need more teachers and their supporters in the local, state, and federal government so we can actually move forward with a better legal environment. So I keep hearing a lot about a coming teacher shortage, and I'm curious, is there a shortage that's coming? And if so, what role are teachers' unions going to play in trying to address that shortage? So you mentioned briefly that you have a student teacher, and she's very passionate, and she loves students, and she loves being in a classroom. And you said there's not enough of her. That's probably the main reason why we have a teacher shortage in this nation. If you have to rely on a workforce that's passionate about their working, regardless of the pay, you're going to be out of luck. (laughs) Right now, our labor market is pretty tight and people can find jobs everywhere. That means students will have other options than being in a classroom Mm. and they will realize it quickly. Right. So if you want to solve the national teacher shortage, then you got to do from the bottom. We know what teachers ask for. We've seen teacher strikes. Then why don't we just listen to their request? And that could be the starting point. Right. And then teacher shortage is not really everywhere. You might imagine there's some district that they do well and they actually have some cues. So some people want to become teacher in those districts. But in a lot of other districts, That district tend to have a teacher shortage for several, several decades, right? So those are the districts that we probably have to care more about. And there is always a reason for those shortages. And we know the reasons. And we're kind of trying to find other solutions when we actually know the solution, right? So teachers' unions are there to address that. Somehow you can blend this, this natural passion and knowledge that you have with like the data and the research and all the rest of that, that is such a rare gift you have. Thank you. <laughs> Talking to you today brings it all just full circle for me. So thank you so much. I admire that you're doing this for your audience and the teachers. I think we need more of you. Oh, well, well, thank you. You know, we're <laughs> trying, you know, we're, this, this season, like I said, we're, we're trying to address this idea that we do have to get better. And there are these institutional things that make it easier or hard for us to do. One of the other exactly. things that I'm tackling this year is the teacher evaluation tool of which, you know, I'm, I'm subjected to every year, even as, even as a tenured teacher. And what does it do to improve my practice? The research shows not much. So do you find it helpful for yourself? No. Not exactly. Exactly. Never. You've already at the place that you're probably the peak at your career. You're the most productive phase in your career path and doing the evaluation and just adding the burden to administration and to teachers. Exactly. Well, thanks again for taking the time. Really appreciate Thank you. it. It was Thank really you nice so meeting you, Eunice. Nice meeting you as well. All right. Take care. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode of Third Borough Classroom. Thanks again to Dr. Eunice Han for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time. This episode of Third Rail Classroom was written by John Golden and Santa Cassell, produced and edited by Laura Love.